back to another episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Brian LaRiche to be discussing his company and online course series, Performance Redefined. This episode was an amazing discussion, and his course is a very high-quality course for all rehab and fitness professionals. It's one that I myself recommend to people. Brian is an entrepreneurial physical therapist and owner of Performance Redefined. Besides seeing patients at his clinic, he has created the Performance Redefined online course and the PR club. These platforms help him to teach movement students and movement professionals how to elevate their standards and redefine their professional and personal limits. We have an amazing discount for you in the link below. You can use the coupon code BRONBODY at any of the links you see listed in the description below to save big on your purchase of Brian's course. Before we get to this amazing episode, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by CTM Band and CTM Recovery Products. These are the exact soft tissue recovery tools that I'm using on myself and with my patients day in and day out. CTM Band was founded by Dr. Kyle Bowling, a sports medicine practitioner who treats professional athletes, and he was a former guest on the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. You can check out his website at the link below and use the coupon code BRAWN10 to save 10% off your order from CTM Band. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you on today, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Dan. For people who aren't familiar with you and Performance Redefined and all the amazing things that you've been doing, would you mind kind of filling us in a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I have a definitely more of a unique background as it relates to physical therapy. Uh, if we kind of go back a little bit, I started as a music major, uh, ironically enough, and uh, quickly realized, yeah, I'm not quite so sure what I'm going to do with this uh, and, and knew I loved exercise, right? So went from the exercise science or sorry, from the music major to the exercise for, uh, science major and thought I was just going to own a gym. I opened up my first gym, my senior year of undergrad. So kind of was at the mindset, hey, I'm going to just do my do my own thing, run my gym, didn't really take all the prereqs for PT school. And then I kind of got into continuing ed stuff, postural restoration stuff, different mindsets and realized the majority of my day was on a PT table when I owned the gym. And I was like, huh, probably should, you know, continue, go for, go to PT school and kind of learn and have that scope of practice. So went back, took some more prereqs, ended up selling that first gym called Functional Training Studio, and then opened up Performance Redefined when I went to PT school. So kind of been from a uh, music journey to exercise science to entrepreneurship to PT school, and, and now I uh, own and run Performance Redefined. So you opened a gym while you were still finishing your undergrad degree and then sold and opened a whole nother gym while you were in grad school. Yeah, essentially, uh, I knew I wasn't going to be able to fully focus on, you know, running a business and having that responsibility and that risk while in PT school, but knew I wanted to do that at a smaller scale. So uh, fortunately, I was able to sell my first gym. And then I want to say a month or so before I started PT school, I opened up a smaller one that was closer to school that I could work at part time as needed. 
because I always knew I was trying to set myself up for success in the future, right? And I, I like to tell a lot of PT students that, that a lot of times we get really tunnel vision when we're in PT school and we feel like we can't do anything else, right? And we just think we have to only focus on school. And yes, it's important, but if you can start putting steps in early to kind of guide and build that, that success path. So for me, I knew I wanted to have somewhere that the day that I graduated, I could then have a full, fully functioning PT clinic gym, and it would be a very smooth transition. So while it may not be easier at times, it's well worth it in the end. So yeah, so I opened it up, just put the necessary steps in, built it slowly. Then once I graduated, it was a very easy, smooth transition. For sure. I love that approach that you used. I think that applies to pretty much everyone across the board. You know, you can think about it in the context of PT school, but you can think about it in life in general, too. People tend to overestimate what they can do in the short term and underestimate what they can do in the long term. And if you start doing things wherever you're at currently to put you closer to that long term goal, you know, you can literally go one percent per day. You know, it doesn't have to be a lightning fast kind of pace that you're going towards that goal. But if you have that big goal and you just start moving towards that a little bit day by day, that's going to put you, you know, you'll, you'll achieve it before you know it is basically what I'm trying to get at. Whereas a lot of people just kind of look at how daunting that journey can be and they just walk away completely, I think. Yeah. And for me, I like to coach a lot of PT students and tell them that clarity is power, right? A lot of times people don't really know what they really want to do, right? And then they kind of live their life in limbo and they don't get that fulfilled, satisfying feeling. So if you can get clear, then you know the exact specific steps you need to take, right? So for me, I knew I wanted to do this long term. I knew I had to get something and I had to put those steps in early so that it was a smooth transition. So I wasn't kind of scrambling once PT school is over. Because again, I feel like a lot of PT students think that PT school is just like, it's never going to end, right? And life is always going to be that. And then one day you graduate and then you're kind of scrambling, looking for stuff. So for PT students, I always encourage them to try to figure out what they want to do in the future. They don't need to know the exact thing. But again, if you can make that connection, if you can build that strength, if you can take that course, right? Do something that is going to continue to build you towards that. You will really be appreciative in the future. Definitely. Speaking of course, I know that you mentioned earlier that you have your own through performance redefined. What all does that course cover or what is it that you kind of look to address in that? Yeah, so the performance redefined course is really my, my passion, my purpose, what I really enjoy doing. And that's really essentially teaching movement professionals. There's mostly PT students that take the course, but movement professionals, physical therapists, strength and conditioning coaches, PTAs, anyone in this field, really how to raise their standards. Because to me, I feel like our profession tends to have low standards. And I think that comes from a poor work environment. I think that's a big catalyst for that. And what people learn in the course is really how to create a career that's actually backed with intent, right? So meaning they're performing assessments with intent, they're prescribing exercise with intent, they are programming with intent, they're communicating with their patients with intent. And a lot of that just, you need to know the why to do that, right? So a lot of the course is really teaching the why. And for me, 
before I was in PT school, I always kind of wondered like, well, why is that person compensating? What's the reason for that, right? And it's instead of just kind of saying, oh, they're just tight, but, but what's the real why behind it? And I kind of kept searching and searching and then I went to PT school and it, they, they help you, but to me, it just kind of takes it one more level so you can really understand the why behind people move, why they breathe certain ways, why they perform certain ways, and then you know how to assess and prescribe exercise the right way. Right. And I think that you have to at least attempt to try and get to the root cause of things and not just settle for face value. Right. And mm -hmm. I like how you said, you know, you need to have intention behind what you do. I like to say when every action has a purpose, every action is going to have a result. You know, so speaking in the PT context, if you're doing an initial exam on someone, ask questions that are going to give you information that actually pertains to the patient case, right? So if you're going to ask all these questions about the patient's pain, do you really care if they have a three out of 10 pain or a four out of 10 pain? Is that going to completely alter your course of treatment? Do you really care if they have eight steps in their home or 10 steps in their home? You know, at the end of the day, you have to focus on the things that are actually going to give you what you need to move forward. And a lot of times that's not asking all these nitty gritty specific questions. And a lot of times it's not performing every single special test under the sun, right? I don't need to perform 20 shoulder special tests to be able to say, you know, this person probably has shoulder impingement. Yeah, for me, what I find... I feel like our profession as a whole doesn't tend to carry their assessments through. And what right. I mean by that is we, we perform assessments to check the box. And if you really break down the assessments, typically they cost more money for either the patient, if it's a cash base or for the clinic, they typically charge more and you usually have more time, right? Typically it's a longer session. So what tends to happen is we do the assessment, we see their specific measurements, right? I.e. limited shoulder flexion on the right or limited uh, hip ER on the left, right? And then what a lot of PTs do is they resort to their protocols. They resort to their knee protocol. They resort to their shoulder and everyone does the same thing. And to me, it's because they don't, they're not, they don't have intent behind it. But I think if they don't have intent, they don't understand the true reason why right? They're just chasing symptoms compared to like we kind of like you mentioned, going for the source, right? And when you start to understand what's the source and how do I fix the source, the symptoms will always clear up, right? Because the symptoms are following the source. And that's a big part of, of the performance redefined course is understand what the source is. What is your assessment truly telling you, right? Right. And then proceed based on the assessment. And that's going to look a little bit different based on every person you're working with. It's not the same thing over and over and over again, right? You know, you could get 10 people that walk in your clinic or practice or whatever with lower back pain, and every single one of them gets different exercises and different progressions. It's not the same thing repeatedly. Um, I forget who we were talking about this with recently, uh, maybe Eric Diagati and Mike Perry, but basically we talked about that PT students, PTs in general, can do pretty good at identifying limitations and impairments. But when it comes time to, as you said, carry that assessment through into a treatment plan, a lot of people just tend to fumble and they don't really understand the principles behind program design and the overall progression that's going to get that person back to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and what, what it really comes down to as well is the assessment will guide your programming, right? And like you said, a lot of PTs, whether they're, whether they're PTs or PT students coming out of PT school, they struggle with the programming, right? But if you go back to, again, the source, the source is not understanding the assessment, right? When you truly understand the, what the assessment is telling you, you will know exactly what you need to do for your patient. And it turns the highly common guessing game that a lot of people do into a statistical success story for your patient. Uh, and it really comes down to because you're not guessing because you have no intent, you know why they're moving like they're doing based off that assessment. Right, right. And if you're someone who struggles with that, do what I did and take a patient that you're working with and turn it into a case study for yourself. Look back and look at everything you did for the initial examination and think, okay, what could I have done differently? Look at your progression of the exercises you did and how that patient progressed. And if they didn't progress the way you wanted them to, look back and think, hey, what could I have done differently, right? Have that conversation with yourself, look at yourself in the mirror, and maybe things went really well. I've, mm -hmm. you know, fortunately had a great track record with shoulder impingement where, you know, I'm averaging, I can get a patient, depending on their goals, every patient's different, but for most people who just want to reduce their pain and get back to doing everyday life stuff, you know, that takes like eight to 10 visits for me, for most of the patients I've worked with. So I feel pretty good about the things that I've been doing there, but I still go back and reassess because what if someone doesn't respond to that kind of battery that I've developed for impingement? What if this exercise doesn't work for that person? What am I going to do then? And if you have what I call that pre-mortem with yourself, where you kind of think about the things that could cause your plan to die, then hopefully you prevent it from falling apart and, you know, wasting a patient's time and money and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And for, for those that are listening, I, it, it may sound cool and like, oh yeah, it's that easy, but what, what's the tactic? What's the strategy? And one of the big things that I like to teach people is to look at the human body as a, in a categorical sense. When you can start to create categories, you start to understand expectations. And the easiest way that I can put it into description is think of two different cars, right? So if you have a Lamborghini and a smart car, you have expectations just based off those words, right? Lamborghini is going to be super fast, going to be terrible at gas. Uh, it's going to be really expensive, right? And a smart car is going to be less expensive. It's going to be slow. It's going to be really good at gas. And so there's pros and cons to both. And so what the course really dives down to is understanding the two main categories and archetypes of the human body. And when you start to understand that, you understand the expectations as far as their compensations, their breathing patterns, their movement, and really how they'll perform. And then what I like to tell people, it's really just as easy as getting them good at what they're bad at. And when you do that, you unlocked movement variability. And at the end of the day, that's a hot word in the physical therapy world, right? Movement variability. But we all are biased towards one extreme of movement. Our jobs, essentially, if you really bring it to its simplest form, is provide your patient movement variability and they won't be in pain. Yeah, I mean, movement vocabulary or movement variability is certainly a big thing that, you know, doesn't fall into most people's lives, right? And you can mm -hmm. apply that to any patient population. So take the strength and, strength and conditioning world, for example. How many strength and conditioning programs do you see that are purely sagittal plane in nature, right? 
You know, we're going to do barbell bench press and pull-ups and lat pull-downs, and we're going to do some dumbbell front raises and some bicep curls, and that's our upper body workout. And then our lower body workout, we're going to squat and we're going to do leg extension and leg curl and maybe like a forward lunge or some step-ups or something like that, right? And that's most strength and conditioning programs, sagittal plane movements. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? In order to do all those things, you need to think outside the sagittal plane. You need to dip into frontal plane, transverse plane. There's multiple planes of motion. So naturally, when you have someone that comes in who has issues or difficulty or pain, maybe they have pain when doing a pull-up, um, you then take them out of the sagittal plane and you look at their motion in the other planes. And more often than not, at least from my experience, it's usually trash, for lack of a better way to put it. And as you increase, as you said, as you increase their variability, so as you improve their ability to move in the frontal plane, as you improve their ability to move in the transverse plane, or even move in between planes of motion, now all of a sudden, everything improves for them, right? Because life doesn't happen in one plane of motion over and over again. We need to move in all planes simultaneously, right? Think about, say, a baseball pitcher. They can't just throw a baseball in the sagittal plane. It includes all planes of motion at the same time. So I like that you think outside the box in that, you know, you say, look, here's what we see, but we also need to think bigger picture here and realize that human movement occurs in all planes at the same time. And we can't just keep giving people the same stuff over and over and expect a different result. Yeah, I mean, following up on that, when you when you say uh, flexion, when you say extension, right? All movement is coupled, right? So all if you look at movement variability, I like to think of it as a number scale, right? So if you had zero as internal rotation and 10 as external rotation, ER and IR encase all motions, right? So what I mean by that, what when you're talking about external rotation, it's always coupled with flexion and abduction, right? So when the arm goes into shoulder flexion, it's also abducting and externally rotating, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have internal rotation paired with adduction and extension. So when you start to kind of learn these things, it's, it's it, you're, when you're dealing with someone that has poor limitations of flexion, you, you have such a better snapshot it's really actually way more than that. And again, that's kind of what the course goes into is more of this three-dimensional thinking and kind of where you then go from there. Right, right. So on the point of three-dimensional thinking, earlier you mentioned about the importance of assessment and we talked about getting to the root cause of things or as best as you can. Do you feel like it's possible to get to the root cause of dysfunction in most cases? I personally do. I believe that in the physical therapy world, we can say that symptoms are synonymous with the appendicular system mm -hmm. and the source is typically synonymous with the axial skeletal system. So to me, if you have a pelvis that's turned to the right, it's obviously going to show limitations, right? Or if you have someone that's in a forward posture, they're obviously going to have limited shoulder flexion, right? So I think the easiest example is to put it in perspective, if you have someone that's in a forward posture, they're going to have limited shoulder flexion. Well, I think in the physical therapy world, when you're in a symptoms-based mentality, you neglect that they're in that forward posture, right? And you just start stretching the heck out of their shoulder. Yeah, and you get and frustrated because you see no results. 
Yeah. And again, that's an extreme case. Most people, not most, but everyone has asymmetries and asymmetries are a normal thing, right? I mean, look at how we move. It's, it's very asymmetrical on purpose, right? We're always moving into ER, external rotation, and then we're producing power into internal rotation. And then we repeat it and repeat it. But it's this asymmetrical thing. But yeah, I think a lot of people neglect the axial skeleton and they get really tunnel vision, right? So they are just looking at the shoulder. They are not looking at the pelvis. And in the course, I always use the analogy that you have to start stripping the layers from the house. You have to start at the foundation, which is our pelvis, and make sure that that's doing and moving the right way. When that happens, you can then start to move up floors towards your thorax, towards your shoulder, towards your neck, but we have to have a good foundation. And speaking from the source, typically the pelvis is where we want to start to address that. Right, right. That in general, I call it the lumbopelvic hip complex because you've got a lot of interconnected things there. And sometimes it's very difficult to piece out which one of all of those things is actually the culprit behind the problem, right? You know, is it the anominate or is it the sacrum? Is it the hip or is it this? So it's just that whole general area. You have to start from somewhere. And I think tracing things back to the source makes a lot of sense. Now, if you wanted to go beyond that point of, okay, so we know we have dysfunction here. As far as what causes that dysfunction, that's where I feel like you start to get into the case of, well, there's a lot of different factors, right? You know, maybe it's someone's prolonged postures in certain positions. Maybe it's the fact that someone's not sleeping well. Maybe it's the fact that someone's in a very stressful state of their life. There's so many other factors that can contribute to the root cause behind that um, mechanical thing, right? Because there's that mechanical side, but there's also a little bit of the neurological influence as well. And I think that the, feet, the PT field is very uniquely suited in that most uh, patients will spend 30 to 60 minutes and sometimes even more with a doctor in front of them. And almost no other profession allows a patient to spend that long with a doctor. So naturally, you're able to address all those different things or at least hear about all the other areas of their life that could be contributing to the fact that uh, or the reason that they're seeing you right now. And I think there's a lot of power that isn't often discussed in the fact that you can really peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, and find out all of those other factors as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely always a multifactorial event, right? But for me and what we teach in the course is where is that patient on their movement variability scale, right? How patterned are they? And when you understand that, you understand at least things that they need to get good at, right? And it's not a guessing game. It's backed by your assessment, right? Everything is a test, retest, and then test again, right? So once you understand that kind of categorical sense of how patterned they are, where are they on their kind of movement spectrum, we could call it, then you simply kind of start working the opposite motion to regain that movement variability. But I agree 100%. It's It's usually, if not always, a multifactorial event, right? Right, right. And again, from there, what do you do? So, you know, you recognize that there's a lot of different issues that are contributing to this problem. You've picked out the mechanical factors that contribute to it. You've completed your assessment. And now it's a matter of, well, where do I go from here? 
And again, like we talked about before, that's going to look different from every patient that you see, right? You know, so if you, you know, get on the phone and call up Brian, because you know, he's a really smart guy, he's worked with a lot of patients and you go, hey, you know, here's where I'm at. What do I do now? I'm willing to bet you're probably going to say, well, I don't know. It depends because there's a lot of different ways you could go from there. And the thing is, some of the evidence, there's a lot of evidence that says, well, this will help. Well, this will help. Well, this will help. And it becomes a question of, well, can you really go wrong, right? You know, so if you have someone kind of like we were talking about before, who's got limitations in posture and the reason they're having issues with shoulder flexion is they have limited thoracic extension. Well, you could give exercises like say a basic open book to start working into thoracic extension. You could also manip them or mobilize them um, depending on what state you're in. Um, you could, you know, to increase thoracic extension with a manual intervention, or you could also look into something like myofascial cupping and soft tissue work. Which one of those three is right? Well, all of them could help and contribute to a better overall patient presentation. You have to be the one to decide, hey, this is the best intervention for my patient right now. Yeah, here's, here's to me what really makes an exercise right or wrong. It's, an exercise is right when the execution is aligned with the intent. And an exercise is quote unquote bad if it, your execution doesn't align with your intent. And what I mean is, for me, back when I owned my first gym, I definitely was hardcore like labeled things like that's a bad exercise. That's terrible. And now it's like, any exercise can be good if you can justify why you're doing it. If you can justify the modification, if you can justify your intent behind it. And then when your execution of doing that aligns with your intent, that's what makes it good. When it's wrong is when you go up to ask someone why they're doing that and they don't know, right? Essentially, it goes back to what we previously were talking about, that they're following some kind of protocol. And again, because they're probably slammed and they, they kind of, they're going through the motions and it's just a job. It's not really a, their passion and their purpose. And again, their, their execution does not align with the intent. And again, that's a hard core value we teach in the course is your exercise execution must align with your intent. And that's what makes it right versus wrong. Right. You need to have the right intervention for the right patient at the right time, you know? So yeah. to your point, take something like a box jump, right? Some people might look at that and say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to use this in the strength and conditioning world. And I'm going to use this to increase, you know, vertical force output and vertical jump height and all that sort of thing. And then someone else might look at it and say, hey, you know what? That's a great rehab exercise. I've got someone who's post-op ACL. They're nearing return to, return to run state. Before I send them back to running, which is going to be a single leg plyometric activity, right? It's a constant single leg force absorption, single leg force absorption. Before we get them back to running, I should probably see and make sure they can accept force on two legs. Because if they can on two legs, they're sure as heck not going to do it on one leg. So starting mm -hmm. to think outside the box with the realm of movement and exercises and realizing that you can use one exercise for 10 different things or maybe even more, depending on what your intent is, like you said, and what modifications you add into it to bias the spe uh, specific needs of the patient. Yeah, and I think our profession 
feels like the answer always needs to be harder than it is. And when that, and when that happens is, be, is because you don't have intent, right? And then you're scrambling and you think they need to see or you need to prescribe your patient some crazy fancy exercise when in reality you're just doing it with the intent of looking cool in front of the patient or for the patient to be tricked that they're sweating and that sweat is hard work in a good way. When in reality, if you understand the intent, that basic quote unquote boring exercise could be the very best thing for them that is literally going to get them out of pain. And our job in the physical therapy world is to get people out of pain, right? So again, it, it, it always comes back to intent. And when you are kind of living in that state and when you're working in that state for your career, your job becomes very simple. But I think in our field, a lot of people want it to be hard and think that they have to get the hardest answer. When in reality, if you really understand and master the foundations, that's, that's really all you'll need. And then you throw in the necessary modifications as needed. I, to your point, keeping it simple tends to work better for everything and everyone, right? You know, for those who have been in school or who are in school now, how do you like the professor who takes something really basic but blows it way out of proportion to the point where you can't even follow it. You know, we don't like it. So I can assure you that other people are not going to like it when you do that for them in the realm of exercise or interventions or that sort of thing. You know, I like to say you should probably provide reasoning or rationale for what you're doing and why you're doing it, but you don't have to hit every point under the sun that goes with that. So back to our shoulder example from before, I might tell someone why I'm going to do a thoracic manip but they don't need to know that, you know, oh, this isn't actually going to like realign your bones. It's not actually going to do this. It will do this. Like they don't need to know the intricate details and they probably don't care, but they do want to know what you're doing, why you're doing it and what it's going to do for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a great point of, of always communicating in the least amount of verbiage as possible, right? Another kind of problem and these are things we all kind of address in the course but is we tend to just like we think the answer needs to be hard we tend to over coach and over cue right and we we tend to confuse the patient and a lot of that is because unfortunately in pt school you, you don't have a, a how to properly coach a squat how to properly cue this right what's your checklist when your patient looks like this when they're squatting, when your patient looks like this, right? And to me, I'm a big time believer that you should have a checklist for every exercise, right? In your head, you don't have to go through it with your patient, but you need to have that checklist and understand why things are presenting like they do. And unfortunately, you don't get that in PT school. And that's, that's not bashing PT school in any way. The intention is different, right? The intention is, is for, them, is for you to graduate and become a generalist PT and figure out what you want to do and then pass your boards, right? The intent for them isn't how to master how to coach a squat, right? So it's not bashing school, but it's just something you don't get in school. And to me, that's a big component, right? How to properly coach exercise if you really want to be a true movement expert, which a physical therapist is typically labeled as. Right. And like we were talking before we started recording, physical therapists are now a doctorate profession. So we are prescribing exercise. And if you think about prescriptions in the way most people think about them, you think of a physician prescribing medication, 
So there is a dose and they're looking for a response from it. And if they don't get the desired response, then they adjust. So they change the dosage or they change the frequency. They change other variables about it. And if you're a physical therapist who's prescribing exercise, but you yourself don't know how to change the parameters within what you're prescribing, what would you think of a doctor who didn't know how to adjust the prescription medication that they give to you? Right. Yeah. Imagine, imagine a, a MD randomly prescribing for your pain, but not appropriately, right. Making the modifications. It, it could be very harmful. And honestly, it's no different. We, it can be very harmful your prescription, right? I mean, exercise can really hurt someone. So it, it should be kind of taken at that level of care, right? And that level of intent, just like the MD wouldn't want to put the wrong thing in you in the wrong dosage because there'd be really bad side effects. And to me, the same thing goes in the physical therapy world. We just have to keep raising our standards to not go through the motions, to not randomly prescribe, to not understand the intent behind it and continue to raise, raise our standards as a whole. And once you've started to do all these things and you've implemented that higher level of care, start betting on yourself and test it. As you said before, retest. So do a progress check on the patient. Am I getting the results that I want from what I'm doing? Because if you're not, I'd rather find that out a couple weeks or a month into it than three, four months down the line, right? I want to know that what I'm doing is making a positive impact. And if you're not willing to check again, then again, you have to ask yourself, am I really confident in what I'm, what I'm doing? Am I really sure that this is actually giving me the results and benefit that I want from it? But if you never check, you're never going to know. Right. Yeah. And that brings up a great point that really every PT student and physical therapist really should be striving to create their own model right? A lot of times people don't challenge the model they're using, right? When I say model, we're talking about what is your assessment technique, right? Typically people have a flow of what they look at and what they do. Are you doing it just to check the box or are you doing it because it's actually pertinent to your patient, right? And the only way you can start to refine and reframe your model is like you just talked about testing and retesting. And over time through experience, you start to see what works. And again, the performance refine course is a tool in the toolbox, right? I ultimately want everyone to create their own model. If, if stuff that I teach them can be part of it and help redefine their thinking, then great. But ultimately, everyone needs to really have their own model. And again, it just requires a little bit of thought and thinking and then testing and retesting like you were mentioning. And sometimes it doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden years go by and, you know, you're, you've been in the clinic for a while and you're kind of just going through the same routine. Right, right. And, you know, the way you approach every evaluation should be a little bit different, right? Like even if you have someone who comes in with the same subjective complaints, maybe they're the same demographic, your examination uh, at that point should look differently than the one you did a few weeks ago. Because again, you're constantly reassessing, you're constantly redefining, and you have to be curious, right? So, hey, you know, I did this last time, maybe I should try this one too, and just see, you know, what is this going to tell me? What, what am I going to see from this, right? So going back to, we talked about the shoulder before, we'll keep going with the shoulder for an example here. Say I had a patient come in and they had shoulder pain, presentation was almost identical to like a labrum pathology, right? 
So maybe I do a basic, you know, clunk test. Maybe I do an O'Brien's. Maybe I do an anterior slide. They're all positive. Okay, cool. So I proceed from there. Well, maybe I get another patient who has the same presentation, same everything, and I do those tests and they're all positive again. But maybe, you know, while I'm here, hey, let me just do a quick biceps load. See if that gives me something a little bit different. Maybe I throw in some instability testing because, hey, if they have, you know, loss of integrity of their labrum, which is a inert structure to add stability, they might have a little bit more instability in that same shoulder. So let me just check and see if I can get all of the limiting, all of the limitations, all of the factors that are at play here, instead of just, well, I got one, I'll stop there because now I know how to proceed. The other piece I'll mention too, you mentioned before about kind of like developing your system and your checklist. And I think that's something that it's best for people. I think it's best when people start from what I call a 30,000 foot overview, right? Start with your gross movement. So something like say an overhead squat where you can literally look at the hips, the pelvis, the lower back, all the way up to overhead mobility, right? So you start with your gross movement assessment, and then you start to narrow down into your more specific limitations from there. But don't just stop when you get to those specific limitations. Like we talked about before, keep asking why. So if you recognize that someone has compensations in a squat pattern, and you then look at like hip mobility, for example, and you notice they have a positive Thomas test, don't just stop there and say, well, you know, they have tight hip flexors look into it a little bit further. Why do they have tight hip flexors? Do they have good core stability or is their core really weak? Do you think those tight hip flexors could be the only thing stabilizing their core right now? So just kind of look into the why and don't just accept things for, you know, being the way they are. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I could say a brief kind of glimpse into the course and the, and the little mini courses when it comes to assessing and programming, what we really go over is there's two archetypes, right? And it really actually comes down to our infrasternal angle. I don't know if you're familiar with that type of thought process and the respect that that plays with breathing and the pelvis position, which can be related to, you know, increased lumbar lordosis, an arched back position, or kind of more of a kyphotic position and so on. But from there, you start to understand what, what their movement expectations are. And when you understand that, then it's very easy to start to look at the assessment and see, do they kind of follow with their normal expectations? If they do, great. We know how to move them towards the other end of the spectrum. And if they don't, they're kind of more on a pattern. They're just someone that's more into that pattern. But for us in the assessment world, I think we are really quick to just label things as tight, right? Mm -hmm. And going back to our shoulder, if you have limited right shoulder internal rotation, if you learn how to breathe the right way and learn how to get the rib cage to not be stuck so high and into external rotation, then you'll pick up internal rotation with four good breaths. And so for me, it's always, you know, under teaching and understanding that three-dimensional approach that that tight shoulder is actually telling you how the body is laying there, how it's presented and kind of what these asymmetries really mean. And I think when you can understand that three-dimensional approach and not get caught in this two-dimensional, like, oh, they have a tight shoulder on the right, they have a tight hip on the left, and you're not just justifying tightness, but you're, like you said, going back, understanding why is that tight? What's, to me, you have, you have physiologically tight and positionally tight. 
nine times out of 10, most people are positionally tight. Meaning if you turn your hips to the right and you raise your leg, you're going to have a longer hamstring compared to the right. When you switch and, and pull your body weight to the left, like you're in left stance of gait, you're going to have a tighter hamstring compared to the right. And simply because of position. And when you understand these positional asymmetries, it gets really easy to understand and look past those two-dimensional like tightness mindset and understand the true source. Right. And going back to your point there about 3D, recognizing that there's a lot of movement that takes place with even just basic movements. So you were talking about respiration. So when you look at exhalation, the pelvis is going to move a little bit when you exhale, if you're doing it properly, right? You're going to get some sacral nutation. You're going to get a little bit of innominate extension when you're just breathing and moving your ribs. So naturally, if you have problems with that, just at rest, if you load a barbell and squat four or 500 pounds and you do, you know, your breathe and brace technique, then there's probably going to be more problems now that you've added all that extra load and demand and that sort of thing. So uh, back to what we were talking about before, start with where you can. So if you can't even do it at rest, then you kind of have to start there before you build back up to the point where you're doing those higher level, what I call phase four type things. Yeah, I think, and that brings up a great point that uh, to me, I believe respiration is the most overlooked and underutilized uh, part and piece to the puzzle of your assessment, right? I mean, you, start, you look at the diaphragm, a lot of people forget that the diaphragm is a muscle, right? And that thing's contracting 20 to 30,000 times per day. And I always use the example of, um, if imagine if I told you to do, let's say 23,000 wall squats or squats per day, how sore do you think your knees would be? Even if you had good form, it, there's going to be a breaking point. And the diaphragm has such vast attachments on the lumbar spine, on the rib cage, on the sternum, that it's going to start to play a bigger role. So I think people are missing the boat when they're not looking at respiration and how that can be a big time player with the, the outcomes they're looking to get. Right, right. And again, that's a very unique area, but it can be taken a whole lot of different ways. So if you have someone in pelvic rehab, well, guess what? You can trace that back to the diaphragm because both the pelvic floor and the diaphragm play a pretty closely connected role in overall core stability. You could take that same point I just made and apply it to the orthopedic and sports population, right? So if you have someone who needs to breathe and brace a lot, like the first thing that comes to mind for me would be like a boxer or MMA type athlete, someone who's going to be throwing a punch type movement pattern where they have to breathe, brace, and they give a little key up with every rep. Naturally, you're going to need to look at those areas a little bit more because they're more important to the specific sport demand. Taking it another step further, if you have someone in the neuro population, like say you've got someone that comes in for a con post-concussion, say you have someone that comes in uh, with a concussion, naturally you're going to want to reduce their overall stress. So we talked before about uh, the multifactorial side of things. And while, you know, your treatment for a concussion is not going to be just straight breathing techniques. If you take 30, 60 seconds and show patients, Hey, here's how you do a simple box breathing technique. If you lay down at all, give it a try because it's going to help you reduce your stress. It's going to help you ease up some of the tension and just put yourself in a better state of mind right now with everything going on. Then that could go a long way for a patient, especially 
if it's effective at what you say it's going to do, right? A lot of people are walking around with diagnoses like anxiety and uh, hyperactivity and all that sort of thing. So if you can show them a way that they can move that actually reduces those things, it's going to make a whole world of difference for them. Yeah. And the, the specific strategy, right? So we're talking about breathing. How do we start to employ that? It's, again, what is a very simple, effective breathing tool is a balloon, right? Again, going back to our point that it's, it doesn't have to be this crazy, sexy thing that people think when the balloon is a dumbbell for your abs. And a lot of people don't understand that, right? It's just giving resistance. So if you have a wide infrasternal angle, like we talk about in the course, that's going to be someone that's heavily into extension. They need to learn how to get their bucket handle, the lower rib cage, down and in. How do we do that? A balloon is a massively powerful tool to do that because these people don't have the ability to do that, right? We all understand how muscles kind of work with their length tension relationship, right? A long muscles, weak, short muscles, strong. Well, in those type of wide ISAs or extended base people, they're going to have a lot of expansion or what we'd call weakness at their obliques, right? Because their ISA is so wide. And so employing a, a balloon is a powerful strategy. And then that kind of brings down the rabbit hole as, starting position, right? There's optimal positions that you should put your patient in based off their structure, something else that I think is neglected uh, when it comes to really from your assessment into your uh, programming. But the position that you have your, your patient in based off their structure it can be super beneficial for that patient to get them out of pain. You mean to tell me that you just use a balloon and you don't use one of these fancy $200 elevation trainer respirator mask type things? That's all it is. <laughs> uh, but again, you, just to kind of back off our point of intent, when it comes to breathing, you can get so intentional with how you do it. And a lot of people don't think of that. And it comes down to simple thinking of the radius of the mouth. If you decrease the radius, so if you think of a hose, right? If you put your thumb over a hose, what happens? The water comes out faster. If you remove your thumb, the water comes out slower. So someone that is in an extended base position needs to be able to get their bucket handle to come down their lower rib cage. So for them, we want to decrease the radius. So blowing up a balloon is an easy way to do that. Someone that's already in that position, someone that's more flexed, they're going to be more, hey, go fog the glass type of breath, right? We're going to keep the mouth more open. And I just think that's valuable for people to understand that you can get so intentional with that. And all these things add up to giving and really getting the success for your patient that they, they probably haven't had in the past. Right. And just think about all those different cues that you just mentioned, right? There's a lot of different cues that come along with how to get someone to do the thing that you want them to do. And a true expert, in my opinion, is someone who can, you know, explain what they want done simply, like we talked about before, but also do it in 10 different ways. Because each patient is going to respond differently to the terms that you use, right? We talked about this in detail in the athletic population with Dr. Frank Dick on the podcast back in April. And he was using the word, I believe it was dig, to try to get an athlete to go. And he needed to use the word drive. And it wasn't until someone made the recommendation to change the way he explained things that he saw the results that he wanted. So sometimes, like we talked about before, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and think, what could I do differently? And then, like you just did, describe the same thing 
in different ways that someone can connect to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that comes with experience that comes with time, but, and it comes with just always wanting to grow and learn. And, and honestly, it comes back to our point that it's typically easier than you think, right? We, a lot of times, especially if people don't have competence with their exercise coaching and exercise cueing, they think it has to be this fancy thing. Like we talked about when in reality, if you kind of understand the basics, you can coach that and, you, and you'll be much more successful for it. For sure. For sure. Brian, this has been an amazing episode so far. We've talked about a lot of different things relating to your course and the physical therapy world in general. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks that you want people to take away from our discussion? I would just say, it really, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're a, a PT student, if you're a physical therapist, if you're in the exercise science world, I really try and hope that everyone can try to find purpose behind what they're doing. And it sounds so simple and cliche, but a lot of times people don't find it. And once you kind of understand your intention, all things we talked about, then you can continue to raise your standards. But again, every day, how can you raise your standards and how can you do whatever you're doing with intent? And you will be much happier for it and you will also get much better results for it. For sure, for sure. Brian, for people who want to find out more about you and want to look into your course and performance redefined more, where can people find out more about you? The best way I would say is either on Instagram or the website. The Instagram is just performance redefined. I believe it's performance underscore redefined underscore. And then the website is just performance redefined.net and everything on that site from free articles to free videos to the PR club, which is a different type of kind of uh, membership platform I have. And then the actual performance redefined course that can all be found on performance redefined.net. Awesome. We'll link to all of that below in the show notes. So that way, if you didn't quite catch what we were, uh, what Brian just mentioned, you can just click there and check out his stuff. Brian, really appreciate your time, man. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.